If you would, turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. Last week we read the whole book. This week we're coming back just to the four verses. As we've started our study in 1 John, uh, we're going to see, we're going to witness uh, some of those same themes that he'll repeat. And as you saw last week, he repeats over and over again. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, this is God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, we have heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Since the reading of God's word. So picture this setting. A world where even the Christians are relativist. They don't believe in absolute truth. They're uncertain. Even the pastors and the theologians are uncertain about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. There are lots of new spiritualities everywhere. The idea that there's only one way to salvation is considered backwards and ignorant. Sound familiar? Today we live in that sort of world. You may even ask yourself occasionally, can the gospel work in that kind of environment where no one really believes where few, even few believers believe in absolute truth, where Christians are relativists, where uh, pastors and theologians, they're uncertain about Jesus, where there are new spiritualities all over the place, that the idea of salvation is only obtainable in the name of Jesus by the work of Christ and received by faith alone, that that's viewed as outdated, old-fashioned. Can the Christian gospel work and thrive and succeed in that kind of environment? Can it? I mean, we feel that today, right? That is the environment we live in. Uh, polls tell us like 60% of self-identified evangelicals don't believe in absolute truth? Can the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel work in that kind of environment? The answer is an emphatic yes. Because it already has. We've already seen it. In fact, what I described to you was, I was not, though it sounds like today, I was describing 
that wrecked Roman Greco world where John lived and wrote. Pluralism, relativism, they were dominant ways of thinking. And friends, the gospel conquered that world. John's writing to Christians in Asia Minor. They're living in times that were just as uncertain and just as changing as the times we live in. And John is saying to them, look, I know you're not, you're unsettled. You do, your confidence in the gospel, it's, it's a little shaky. You're not sure if the gospel will be able to do what we pray it does. This world is ever-changing. There are a plethora of truth claims that the world makes. There's a plethora of truth denials that the world makes. You're unsettled. Uh, you're, when people are holding to a Jesus that is different than the Jesus that I have taught you, you're unsettled. You're unsettled when now people are believing there are other ways to get to God. There's other ways to have a true knowledge of God other than through a relationship with Christ. You are unsettled when they make different kinds of claims about Jesus. And it's not the biblical Jesus. Therefore, he says, I am writing to you. Notice how he, what, how he puts this. Notice, look, I knew Jesus, <laughs> right? I touched him. I saw him. I heard him. I, I knew who Jesus was. I know who he is. And I know what he taught. And I'm reinforcing that with you today. I am confident because I knew him. I know him. I handled him. I heard. I know what he taught. I saw him. I touched him. I handled him. I laid my head on his chest. Jesus called me his beloved disciple. I knew him. You can be confident. That's, that's what he is saying here. So friends, this is a letter from a man who knew Jesus. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. He touched Jesus. He knows Jesus. And he's speaking to you, remember, so that you may have confidence to strengthen your assurance that you would have assurance in the gospel the gospel about Christ, that you would know what it means to be a Christian. Several things I want us to see. And these are themes, like I said, we will see these themes time and time again as we walk through 1 John. Themes that strengthen the Christian life. Themes that produce and result in Christian assurance for the believer. The first thing we see today, notice the pre-existence of Christ. Look at verse 1. What was from the beginning? That's a bit strange, isn't it? What? He says, what was from the beginning? You might think, oh, he's going to talk about the message. What? What? Like from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at concerning the word of it, it, it could sound like he's he's just talking about the message but it becomes obvious then right it's clear 
he starts to talk about hearing, seeing, looking, touching this life that was manifested in verse 2, seeing, testifying, proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father, which was manifested to us, he says. It's clear he's talking about both the message and the messenger of eternal life. The gospel of Jesus and Jesus. He's talking about both of these things. He's talking about the message of eternal life and, the God, and Jesus Christ who is life. He's talking about both of these things. So he says, what was from the beginning? He's pointing you both to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. He's drawing your attention to the preeminence of the message of Jesus Christ. The apostles didn't make up the gospel. I hope you understand. The church did not make up the gospel. The apostles didn't do it. Later councils did not do it. No, no. John is setting up for us. The word was there from the beginning. From the beginning. Now, Jesus, as second person of the Trinity, is eternally God. Eternally God. But it's not just Jesus, eternally God, that is eternal. The gospel is eternally true. Remember Titus chapter 1? Titus says, it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Okay, so eternal life. Which God who cannot lie promised before the worlds began. Before the world even began, God promised this message. The apostles didn't make it up. Remember how John began his gospel? The gospel of John? So go home this afternoon, read John chapter 1, maybe go down to verse 14, compare that to 1 John chapter 1. Read the first eight verses there maybe. John expects that you remember what he wrote in the gospel of John. Do you remember that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wants you to remember that. He wants, remember we saw that last week. For those who believed what he wrote in the gospel, now he's writing in 1 John so that you would have confidence and assurance in what you believe. The message of the gospel is an old, old story. Christ, the gospel, they're rooted in eternity. And so pastorally, what John's doing here, he's exposing those who come into the congregation and they've got some kind of new spirituality, some kind of new teaching, new improved Christianity. No, 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 no. no. The gospel message is an eternally true story. The gospel of Christ is eternally true. It's rooted in the word of life himself. Thus, it's fit, fixed and unchanging. It's not novel. 
It's not just something that is uh, made up, but it is everlastingly fresh. So, what he would say to a church like this, if someone comes in and they show up at church and they start telling you they've got some kind of new truth, some kind of new teaching, new spirituality, and for the last 2,000 years no one knew about it or believed it, do you know what to call that person? A liar. That's what you call them. That's bit, I didn't go to seminary to learn that word. A liar. That's what you call them. The story of the gospel is an old, old story. It doesn't change. It's rooted in the eternal word of life. So the Christian message wasn't invented yesterday. It wasn't invented in your lifetime. It wasn't invented in your ancestors' lifetimes. It's eternally true. Therefore, there's a stability to it. If it doesn't change, you know what you can count on tomorrow's being true? The gospel. It doesn't change. It's rock solid. There, there is stability that's rooted in the person of Christ and the gospel of Christ. So, he, he comes out, he's addressing this right off the bat. See the pre-existence of Christ. See the eternal, glorious Son of God, the Word of God, and the message about the Christ. Look, the gospel truth is old as eternity because the word of life that we speak, it was from the beginning. It was from the beginning. Second thing, notice this. This eternal life was manifested. How was it objectively made known? In the flesh of Jesus. Verse 2. So, verse 2, some of your translations will have a dash, like at the end of verse 1. Where it says word of life, you see it like an M dash. And then verse 2 all the way through. And then at the end of verse 2, you'll see another dash. This, he's pausing. He's saying, okay, he starts in verse 1 and he's got his, here's what he's saying. But he, he, he stops, he pauses. And he said, he's going to come back to his train of thought. But this is a very important pause in verse 2. He just, okay. Sidetrack, let me explain this, because John wants to zero in on this particular truth here in verse 2. He's going to go back to his thought that he started in verse 1, but it's important. He says the blessed life, the, this eternal life, this joyous life, this meaningful life, eternal life, with fellowship with God, it's manifested objectively in Jesus Christ. Okay? Notice verse 2. The life was manifested that we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. It was manifested to us. So he pauses and tells you the eternal word came into our space in our time. All right? So he's stressing, right? The apostles have seen and testified, proclaimed, what? That Jesus Christ was visibly manifested in the flesh. 
And this is not the first time that he says it. It's not going to be the last time that he's going to say it. Matter of fact, he said it in verse 1. He's going to say it again in verse 3. Look, just look at those three verses. He starts off, what we have seen with our eyes, we beheld, we've held it with our hands. Or verse 2, what we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you uh, was manifested to us. Or verse 3, what we have seen and heard and proclaim to you also. So what's he saying? The apostles, they knew him. They saw him. They, they heard him. They touched him. We know him and his message. So you can be confident in what we are saying. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it have been great to see Jesus? Wouldn't it have been, I mean, tremendous. John says, I did. You can believe John because he did. He saw Jesus. He handled him. John says, this, you can believe me, this is what he is like because I know him. He taught, and this is what he taught. He told us about the way to salvation. This is the way to salvation. And that's really important for us. You know why? In light of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you did not see him, now you believe in him. You haven't seen Jesus. I haven't seen Jesus. John did see Jesus. Jesus is not going to show up in your bedroom tonight. But you love him. You believe in him. This is why this is important. We can believe what John says about Jesus because John did know him. We love and we believe in a Savior that we've never even seen, but we believe the Word of God about him. John did see him. But you, I do want to encourage you, you will see him, Christian. When he cracks the sky, you will see him face to face and you'll be made like he is. You will see him. But John says, I saw him in the flesh. So you can be confident in it. You can be confident exactly who the word says, who my word, who this letter says Jesus is. You can be confident in it. Confident in it. Notice the third thing. This message about Jesus manifested in the flesh the purpose that John preaches that, the reason the apostles preached the gospel of Christ was for the production of fellowship. It was for fellowship purposes. True fellowship. A shared life together in Christ. Listen to what he says. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the reason the apostles preached, he, he explains, was for this reason. The creation of a fellowship between brothers and sisters in Christ that we share life together, we are brought together in Christ, 
We are mutually committed together. We, have, we believe the same gospel. We have the same Lord. We have the same Heavenly Father. We love the same Jesus. We're trusting the same God. We are proclaiming the, the same gospel. It's the same gospel that they proclaimed. Don't you love your church family? I mean, it's beautiful. So I, even the last couple days, I was just moved to see Benjamin and Johnny weed-eating and laughing together, just out working, serving. It's beautiful. Stirring. Powerful. To see people's hearts opened up and caring, like church family coming together, caring for people they didn't even know about. Stirring. To see church members caring for other church members. Expects nothing, but we want to love you. It's beautiful. It's marvelous. Seeing Sunday school teachers at little kids' birthday parties. It's beautiful. Giving our times and gifts, hearts open to one another, true concern for one another, thinking through the issues of life with one another. It's marvelous. Friday night, seeing the grown-ups shooting the kids with Nerf guns. It's beautiful to see the interactions one with another and the care for one for another. It's marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. And so we're thankful for that unity that we have, the shared fellowship with, that we have. Next week, we will share a meal together. That would be sweet. It's always wonderful. But notice here, it's not just that it's among us. Notice what he says. We proclaim this so that you may have fellowship with us. Us. The stress is not just that we have fellowship with each other, but we have fellowship with the apostles. <laughs> this is mind-blowing. We have fellowship with them. Those who have already gone before us. So thinking back to Pastor Scott a couple weeks ago, uh, the church of Christ still continues in the apostles' doctrine. We don't depart from it. We, ha we have this in common. He says that you have fellowship with us. And the only way you have fellowship with the church is to believe what the apostles taught about Jesus Christ. When you believe those things, he says, you have fellowship with us. If you believe what we taught about Jesus, if you have fellowship with us, it's because we are in agreement about this. So do not come and say, to me, Jesus is like this. If it's different than what the apostles taught, you don't share that fellowship with them. A believer, a Christian, is one who believes what they have told us about Jesus, not what you have invented about Jesus. So there's this unity here of among us, so one to another, and with those in the past. The proclamation of this message creates this accountable fellowship, and it expresses itself. It's beautiful. It's a commitment to the apostles' teaching. John Stott says this, This verse is a rebuke 
to much of our modern evangelism and church life. We cannot be content with an evangelism that does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church, nor with a church life whose principal cohesion is superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, the saying, I don't want a, a church that's a country club. Well, it is, has been observed that everybody says that until the church stops acting like a country club. And then guess what people get angry about? They, don't, they want their country club back. No, no, that, that's not what it's about. It's about union with Christ, our fellowship with Christ and who he is. United to a local body of believers because we are part of the body of Christ. It's not because we share things in common. It's that we share a Savior in common. A Savior. It's a true shared life. And, and this shared life, not just has, it doesn't just have horizontal connections, notice. It's got vertical connections, doesn't it? Because our fellowship isn't just with one another. Our fellowship is not just with the apostles and their teaching and their doctrine. He says our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So there's this vertical dimension to this fellowship. It's the way that we relate to God. So he speaks of this paternal fellowship. We, are, we have fellowship with the Father, and he speaks of this Christological fellowship. We have fellowship with Christ, our elder brother. It is a triune God, right? How do I have fellowship with God and fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ? It's only because the Spirit of God has taken my heart and brought me into union with the Son. We partake of the life that God gives. This is eternal. To, to know you, O oh God, is eternal life. So the purpose of preaching the gospel is to bring people to know true life. To know true life. Here's the blessed life, the happy life, the, the, the Godward life. Its roots are in the life of God. It is in Christ, manifest in the flesh. If you want life, and maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, you want life, you must know Jesus savingly. It's the only way. It's the only way. All true life flows from him. And if you don't have that, you do not know him savingly. You're not saved. You know, it's a good reminder, too. We're, we don't call people to join social groups or so, social clubs. I, I, the comment about shooting kids with Nerf guns, it's fun, and everybody likes to do it. It's very, adults, it's very therapeutic. Kids, it's probably just as therapeutic for you. But we don't, we don't call people to join social clubs or a social group. We call people to know God. You need to be reconciled to a holy God. 
And the only way that you can do that is through the work of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. You want true life? Don't come to church. Come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, then come to church. That's the right order. Notice this mutual accountability, this shared life. This is the final thing. All true life flows from him. But notice this shared relationship, it's, it's consummated joy, isn't it? See that in verse 4? So it's an old, old story, verse 1. The truth and life, they're found in Jesus, verse 2. The purpose of proclamation is fellowship with one another, with the apostles, with the Godhead, verse 3. And then look at verse 4. The life of God is a life of shared joy together. Shared joy. These things, he says, I, we write so that our joy may be made complete. So mutual accountability... It comes from membership in the body of Christ. This mutual accountability, it's, it leads, what? To shared life together, fellowship, and it's a life of joy. Life of joy. Notice the order. Verse 1, the message. Verse 3, fellowship or shared life. Verse 4, joy. That's the order. That's the gospel order. Message, shared life, joy. Message, shared life, joy. So gospel proclamation, true fellowship with his people, true joy. That's, that's, the, that's the order. Shared roots. Christians, we share, it's rooted in God himself. We have a shared life in God, and that life is a life of joy. So if our fellowship is rooted in anything else, other than the triune God, it will be a fellowship of strife. Because we will all have our own idols, and we will fend for our idols, we will fight for our idols, and I will hate you if you don't love my idol, and I will hate your idols in return. That's what happens. When, when a church is divided, and they all have separate things that they love and care about, and we can make anything an idol. But when we have Christ, the Son of the Father, and we've been united and brought into a, we've been reconciled to God through the work of the Spirit in our hearts that has brought us to Christ, and, and we're presented to the Father in Christ, friends, this is a life of joy. And this is what it is pictured in our fellowship when he is the center point of what we love and what we believe. Remember Psalm 116, verse 11, says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What does it mean to be in the presence of God with God's people? It is a life of joy. Remember what Paul wrote. Romans 14, 7, what's he say? The kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God like? He says, not eating and drinking. So, you know, every denomination says they love to eat and drink. Baptists say, we love chicken. Methodists say they love chicken. Every group. Presbyterians, well, they might not say that. 
they might like tofu. Whatever the case, whatever it is, every group says they love to eat. They all say that. But eating and drinking, that's not the kingdom of God. Paul says it's not eating or drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what the people of God, when we have come together, and that is what we have, that's when we display the kingdom. And so there's false teachers. They come into the church and they say, you want real joy? You've got to read this book. <laughs> you don't know real joy until you read. Or you've got to go to this seminar because until you go to that seminar, you won't know what real joy is. No, no, John is saying the fullness of joy is found in the mutual fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, and they share life. And this life flows from the triune God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the joyful Christian life. So if you are trusting him, if you're fellowshipping with him, if you're fellowshipping with his people, you're a participant in the life of God, he says, this is joy. And this is what his people look like. And in the, his presence is joy. The fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. So, does John have a message that will hold up in a pluralistic, relativistic, spiritual, but anti-Christian world? Yes. Yes. When John writes this letter, Christianity is this outcast minority. In 300 years, you know what happens? This gospel conquered the Roman Empire. <laughs> this gospel did. This is what it looked like. The, the world says that looks weak, it looks foolish, it looks ridiculous. But John said, love one another. Through your witness and through your words, through the testimony, through your mutual love together in Christ, that's the gospel that won the world. It won the world. Can it work? Will it work? We know it will. It already has. John, at the end of his life, would be brought in. Uh, Jerome says he would be brought in a pallet and set in the midst of the congregation. And he was so old and so elderly, all he could say is, little children love one another. And so here's the message that John gives to us. Is it weak? Is it foolish? I mean... Wouldn't it be better to have some great schemes of political upheaval? To really change things? No. This is what changes things. This is what changes us, and this is what changes the world. It'll shake the world, and it will take the world. This is the manifestation of the gospel. And may this be what flows forth from Emmanuel Baptist as we heed the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. Lord, if we had a thousand tongues, it's not enough. We wouldn't have enough to be able to rightly sing your praises, uh, to, to rightly announce and worship you. Lord, we praise you. We learn in your word. and Would you teach us? in the days to come, 
that our life is indeed an expression of the saving life of Jesus Christ. That may we know of this fellowship with the triune God that we're just not out here wandering on our own or trying to do our best, but we have fellowship with the triune God. May we know the sweetness and communion and union with the Holy Christ each day as we live and walk with you, O Lord. May we know your sweet compassions and care for us as our Father. May we know and fellowship and be changed by your powerful spirit that is working in us, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Oh Lord, may we know that our fellowship is with you. And from that fellowship, that we have fellowship one with another as we trust the gospel the good news about Jesus. And Lord, would you cause that, those bonds to grow? Would you cause those bonds to grow stronger? Just as our walk with you and our faith in you grow stronger, would you cause our bonds of love and unity and mission and purpose and joy to increase? as we see what all the things that you do among us. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.